Nacht und der Morgen, der Bach und der Fronten mit Freude am Voraus. Hey everybody, welcome to the Antifada. We're joined by Bidia Damschek. She wrote uh, a book you might have heard of from Breitbart or Fox News called Communism for Kids, which is a really great book for kids or for adults. More for adults, right, would you say? Yeah. I, it, would, I would say more for adults, but children read it too. For sure. Yeah, I mentioned uh, that it had a little bit of controversy because Breitbart and Fox News were saying that MIT Press, who's the publisher of your new book that we'll be talking about today, was trying to sell communism to kids. And whenever Fox News or Breitbart does that, that book becomes a bestseller. So you got the, the coming insurrection treatment, the full surrogacy now treatment. And um, we, I think part of what we have to do today is figure out how to make some controversy around yeah. yesterday's tomorrow so it, it, yes. we can sell some, move some units. Okay. It's going to be your job. Okay. <laughs> you don't have any ideas about what might freak out uh, Glenn Beck or Tucker Carlson? No, no, no. The thing is, you know, I have ambivalent feelings about this because, like, being attacked by right wingers, fascists, and conservatives only if it's only even if it's only online, it's not all all that comfortable, you know. Mm, right. So, of course, there's some funny parts to it if you start reading the commentaries and start listening into the reviews. But it's also not only comfortable, but can also be quite uh, troubling. Yeah, it's easy for me to say. You know, we get we get a little bit of that, but it's usually Jamie. It's usually focused yeah. on Jamie yeah. for some okay. reason. For some reason. <laughs> but why don't you tell us a little bit about Yesterday's Tomorrow? Well, Communism for Kids is a book that I wrote already in 2004. And the idea was to, in a way, reopen history after the end of history had been proclaimed, right, by Francis Fukuyama. And my feeling was always that this was not just pure ideology, the end of history, but that it was also reality to it. And you could even see that in the left. When the left claimed another world is possible, they already accepted this melancholy, this depressing atmosphere that had set in after the fall of the Soviet Union. Because in other times, let's say, for example, 1920s, that we will talk about more later on the show, nobody would ever said that another world is possible. At least you would not have said that in order to get people on the streets, because it was always clear that another world is possible. The question was only which world and when will it be here, right? So the end of history was, in a way, uh, a reality. And the idea was to reopen history, not by arguing that communism is the better society, but already by making communism desirable, making it imaginable, making it possible to speak about it. And the way of doing that was using this language of the child, this childish language, the language of a children's book, because this is usually associated with the language of desire, of dreams, of easiness. But already in Communism for Kids, in the epilogue, I asked the question whether it was possible to speak about communism without speaking about Stalin, without taking some form of responsibility for Stalinism and the victims of Stalinism. Or to put it another way, is it possible to go back in history, go back, let's say, to the times of Marx, to the times of the 19th century of early communism or anarchism without dealing with what came in between real existing socialism? And this is the starting point of, of yesterday's tomorrow. It is a communist critique of real existing communism, a communist critique of Stalinism. And it goes through the history of the Soviet Union, the earlier history of the Soviet Union, in order to work through it in the form of, I call it the politics of mourning. It starts in, in 1941 or 1939, and then it goes backwards through the history of the revolution, passing by 
the 1930s, the years of the Great Terror, 1936, 1937, passing by the industrialization, the deculacization in 1932, 1933, and the struggles in the Communist Party in the 1920s, and then passes by the Kronstadt Rebellion, 1921, until it arrives in 1970. Always asking the question, what went wrong? And how could history have been taking a different course? This was one of the powerful things that I, I found about your book is that I think I, I'm guilty of this. And I think a lot of communists and a lot of Marxists are, uh, are guilty of trying to, to go back to Marx, trying to go back to the writings <laughs> of the 19th century, trying to go back to the theorists, and indeed trying to go back to moments like Kronstadt, these moments of possibility and rupture and counter-counter-revolution mm -hmm. in order to try to absolve ourselves and absolve our worldview of things that actually happened in the 20th century. And I think it's striking mm -hmm. and, and important in your book that you say that we cannot do that, right? That there is no way that we can ever absolve ourselves because these, these tragedies and these crimes were inextricably connected to our worldview and it's insufficient to simply yes. move past them. So talk a little bit about that. Well, I think it is of course, possible to go back in history. And it is also desirable in order to overcome also the restrictions that are set by the present conditions, right? If you want to open up, let's say, your mind or your imagination to the possibilities of radical social change, it makes sense to visit or revisit a period of revolution, a period in history where more seemed possible than today, a point in history where people were courageous enough to dream big, let's put it like this, because they felt they had the power to make their dreams come true, very opposite to the present conditions. But as you said, I don't think you can go back to this point in time without working through what is in between. There's, you can never be as naive in a way, as a naive socialist as you could be in the 19th century. You can never pretend that what happened did not happen. You can never be such an naive, optimistic, and hopeful believer in progress after the 20th century. So you have to find a way to deal with, with this history. And, of course, the left is used to deal with the awful parts of history. In a way, it's their main job. They talk about colonialism, the fascism, and imperialism, but talking about the leftist history of domination, a history of domination for which the left is responsible in big parts is something very different. And it also means that some of the theoretical tools that the left has developed need to be adjusted, let's put it like this. Well, to get a little bit more into the, the detail of what we're talking about, uh, the book starts with a, a vivid scene of uh, a transfer of prisoners held by the NKVD, the, the forerunner to the KGB, uh, to the Gestapo in the days before Germany's invasion of the Soviet Union. Um, could you give a, a background on, on who those prisoners were and why that happened? Yes. So... The, the documents of the Soviet Union and of the National Socialist regime give us the information about almost a thousand persons who were transferred from Soviet Union to National Socialist Germany after 1939. This is after the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact or the Hitler-Stalin Pact. And at least 300 of these people were communists socialists, social democrats, 
um, Jewish or non-Jewish, anti-fascist. So many of them, of the thousands who, who the thousand who went, traveled from the Soviet Union to um, Nazi Germany, were workers, specialized workers who had been working in the Soviet Union, and some of them were even like spies for the German government. But these 300 that um, the beginning chapter of my book is focused on were opponents, enemies of the Nazi regime. And they came from Germany, they came from Austria, and they had fled from there to the Soviet Union because they were communist, socialists who believed that they could also continue their anti-fascist struggle, their struggle against Nazi Germany from the Soviet Union. Most of them fled in, in 1933, 1934, but many of them fled even after that. So they had been working, fighting against the Nazi um, party, the Nazi government, the Nazis in the underground. Some of them were imprisoned. Some of them were already imprisoned in the early concentration camps. But then later they managed to flee, managed to flee to Soviet Russia. And then in the 30s, they were imprisoned there in the Soviet Union by the Stalinist regime for many reasons, but you could sum up for no reason. And then when the, then the Soviet government, the Stalinist government, made the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact with the Nazi government, they were sent to Nazi Germany and given to the Gestapo. And, uh, handed to the Gestapo. Uh, a really incredible part of that chapter is is that these prisoners were actually <laughs> arguing with themselves to some extent over the wisdom of this transfer because some of them were still you know very partisan to, to Stalin and and some of them were critical, uh, but mostly they just had to to keep silent, right? So the the book is filled with incredible details uh, like that of. Uh, not only the facts of, uh, of of atrocities like this, uh, but the complexities of it, even for the prisoners themselves. Yeah. Exactly. The, this is the question, like a striking question for me. How do these communists deal with the communist terror? And do they stop believing in the idea of communism or in the idea of this communist government in the idea of a good Stalinist regime, or do you still keep on believing in it even after this regime starts crushing them? So even in prison, many of these communists remain loyal to Stalin, remain loyal to the Communist Party, remain loyal to the Communist International, and then argue that this must be some form of misunderstanding or that Stalin does not know about it or if he knows about it or if the Central Committee knows about it, they must have some reason why they're doing it. So many of them, even still in the trains, trains setting back, set to Germany, believe that this must be some kind of maneuver that the trains would stop, that they would end up in a different part of the world. Because it's unimaginable that the anti-fascist Soviet Union would send them, the Jewish or non-Jewish socialist communist anti-fascists, to the fascists. So uh, you, you mentioned Kronstadt before, and I want to get to that next. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact, the non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Germany... Um, it remains a, a controversial question today uh, among leftists. What was it like then? Like, did anyone see it coming? Um, did, you know, w w were there like mass defections or something like that? How did the communist movement react to, uh, to, to Stalin and, and Hitler suddenly uh, joining a, a non-aggression treaty together? I would say that the, the pact the non-aggression pact between the Soviet Union and Nazi Germany was one of the central ruptures in the history of communism, in the history of the Soviet Union. It was a split, 
that divided the international communists and not only the communists, but also socialists, social democrats and liberals, because they were forming an anti-fascist alliance up to that point in which the Soviet Union played a very important role. So even anti-communist liberals or bourgeois politician democrats were sympathizers with um, with the Soviet Union because the Soviet Union was the anti-fascist ally, the anti-fascist nation. The moment that the anti-fascism was betrayed by the socialist government, the Soviet government, was a shock to the international communist scene. And you could feel this shock all around the globe, in the, in the German Communist Party, whether they were uh, in the exile or still in Germany, could even feel it and have it in the debates between communists in prison, in prison camps, in labor camps. You could feel it, especially in France, in Paris, where the strongest communist party after the fall of the, the defeat of the communist party in Germany was based, but you could also feel it in the US and as I said, all around the globe. It was a shock for communists all over the world. And you could again see it all play out. There were again some communists who tried to find explanations, tried to rationalize it, had some form of dialectics with which they could find an explanation for this almost unexplainable behavior. And there were some, many, for whom this was a turning point. The moment in which Stalin shook hands with Hitler, metaphorically speaking, was the moment where they broke up with the international communist organization, or at least with the Soviet Communist Party. Your book does this great job of archaeology, right? You're uncovering this mm -hmm. lost world and not just these historical events, but these hopes and these dreams and these betrayals and these sentiments. Uh, one of the things that is very unfamiliar to us today in this uh, in the 21st century is to have uh, um, an international communist party, to have a communist international yeah. and also have a national party that represents mm. supposedly the working class. So one of your chapters is about the party. Tell us a bit, and maybe we're getting close to understanding some reasons why or some errors that that led to these uh, disasters. Tell us a bit about what the Communist Party meant to these communist militants, how they had to use dialectics in order to understand you know, the, 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 the various vacillations of the party and how they kind of kept this cognitive dissonance when things like the Stalin-Rippentrop uh, pact happened. Molotov-Rippentrop, rather. Mm -hmm. Well, the... The Communist Party was not just any party, right? It was a, a way of bringing together praxis and theory. It was a way of bringing together millions of individuals and to form them into a collective, which would strive for a socialist society, but at the same time already organize in some form of socialist organization. And this organization, this Communist Party, was also special in the way that it had a very special relationship to time, to the present and to the future, because its main goal was to make... Um, to create a socialist future, to create a society that was not yet here. So all the energy that people put into the party world, all the energy they put into the movement every day again and again was meant to create another world, a better future. And in a way, this also can explain can help explain why it was so difficult for the communists then 
to to leave the party because the moment they would leave the party, this was not all, only a split with the present form of organization, was also a split with the future that they had been promised, they had been promising to each other, right? And this communist party, especially then, of course, in the Leninist form, has the special dialectics of means and ends. And it's an idea that became stronger in Leninism and then even stronger in Stalinism, the idea that the ends justify the means. And that meant more and more justifying any means. So in order to reach this perfect future, this wonderful society of equality, of liberty, and of um, solidarity, you were allowed or even asked to, forced to behave in a very unmoralistic way. Right? And of course, all this behavior, this uh, unmoralistic or let's say, politically problematic behavior was always justified with perspective to the, to the future. And in the moment you gave up on this future, you gave up on this idea that the Communist Party will lead to, to this socialist society, of course, you had to look at everything you had been doing until this point from a very different perspective. And so we mentioned Kronstadt before. It's the hundredth anniversary of Kronstadt was last week. And uh, your book does a, a, a good job describing what a tragedy that was, that the, the heroes of 1917, the, uh, the, the sailors and, and residents of, of Kronstadt, which is a, an island outside of St. Petersburg, a fortress island, um, mm-hmm. rose up as a sort of revolution within the revolution not against the Bolsheviks explicitly, you know, pro-communist, but they had their demands and they wanted, uh, and they, they wanted to negotiate. The response from, from the government, from, from Lenin, from Trotsky, was to, to kill all of them. Yeah, I guess, what do you, uh, what do you see as like the, the real significance of that in, in the history of, of communism? In, in the, the history of communism, it has always been debate in the history of the Soviet Union, history of the Soviet Revolution has always been a debate in the communist movement when it when did it start and when did it end? When, when was the final ending of the Soviet Revolution? Some say it was 1968 in you know, Prague. Others say it was 1956 in Hungary or the early 1950s with the Stalinist anti-Semitism. And others say, with good reason, was 1939, the Molotov-Ribbentrop Act, or the Great Terror in the, in the early 30s. But others say it was 1921. Because 1921 is a very decisive year, 100 years ago. It is a very decisive year for the Soviet Revolution. And first and foremost, 1921 is such an important year because it is the year of victory of the Red Army, of the Socialist Revolution, over the the White Army, the counter-revolution. It's the year when finally the socialist revolution won against the white counter-revolution, the monarchists, and so on. And this, of course, changed the conditions of socialist politics because now the conditions were no longer civil war. And many communists believed that now there was a time when the regime did not have to be as authoritarian anymore as it used to be in the last four years, partly because it was in a constant war. So 1921 is the year of victory, but at the same time, 1921 is the year of two other significant historical events, one being the 10th Party Conference, 10th Party Congress, where the communist, the Bolshevik Party, decided first to get rid of the opposition, 
this is the inner party opposition, for example, the workers' opposition, Alexandra Kollontai. And second, to introduce the new economical policy, which is basically capitalist economics with um, under the dictatorship of the Communist Party. And the other historical event which unfolds at the same time as the 10th Party Congress is Kronstadt. And weirdly enough, it is also members of the opposition, the opposition in the Bolshevik Party, who fight against the Kronstadt Rebellion, who are eager to participate in the killing of the Kronstadt Revolution. And as you said, Kronstadt is a rebellion, a revolution in the revolution. The Kronstadt revolutionaries called it the Third Revolution, and they understood it as an attempt to rescue the revolution, save the revolution, as an attempt to return to the origins of the revolution, the origins of a revolution of equality and democracy, this council democracy, Soviet democracy, without the dictatorship of a party, but uh, socialism based on the activity of the masses, this is the workers and the peasants. So you could argue that 1921 is at the same time the year of victory and of failure. You, um, I mean, one of the greatest questions I think for all of us is how things might have gone differently in Russia. If we abstract away, of course, from um, the fact that the revolution in 1917 happens in Russia itself, and of course not in the more advanced capitalist countries, but if we abstract yeah. away and we think, um, how might things have gone differently? 1921 is this important year. You know, the return of uh, workers' councils and obviously the Kronstadt Rebellion pointed to potentially a different way that uh, the 20th century could have go. I want to read uh, a great metaphor you have, I think, which uh, helps us speculate on how things might have gone differently. It's from towards the end mm-hmm. of your book. Uh, you say, quote, The revolution that accounts for revolution would have to account for its proliferation, for external as well as internal counter-revolution, for this dialectic of revolution. As in a zombie film, the revolutionaries would have to shoot their offspring, encouraging them to shoot at them when the transformation process has begun, when the virus of violence sets in. And like the heroes of these films, the revolutionaries to come would have to turn their weapons on their forebears, encouraged by their victims with tears in their eyes, but certain of the necessity of pulling the trigger. Counter, counter, counter revolution. It is not its children, but its parents that the revolution would have to devour. Is that what was potentially happening in 1921? Was, <coughs> how, do you, how do you see counter, counter, counter revolution as a, as a way to think about the possible? I think if you want to understand the inner logic of Bolshevism, which is something that I'm, I'm trying to do in the book, not only like the outer conditions, imperialist war, Uh, underdevelopment and so on, but the inner conditions, if you want to understand why the Bolsheviks acted the way they acted, it is also important to look in their history or in the way they interpreted history. And there's two historical events that are mostly important to them. One is um, the Paris Commune, the defeat of the Paris Commune, and then, like in a form, a repetition of that, the defeat of the Russian Revolution in 1905. And the other experience they made, they had, was 1940, the betrayal of socialism, internationalism by the socialist parties of Europe, especially by the German socialist party. And from the one event from the Paris Commune, they took the lessons that they never again wanted to be the victims, never again wanted to be those who were slaughtered by counter-revolution, but that they wanted to be those who anticipate counter-revolution and themselves defeat counter-revolution. So 
they create a counter counter revolution. And from the experience of 1914, they draw the lessons that you could not only not trust um, the bourgeoisie and the liberals, but you could also not trust your own comrades, your ideals, your idols, because uh, the German Socialist Party were an ideal for an idol for for Lenin and Trotsky and so on. And both of these events help to explain, in a way, why the Bolshevik party became so militarized, authoritarian, uh, centralized, because they did not want to repeat the the, the experiences from the Paris Commune or from the falling apart of the social democratic party. And in a way, they succeeded because they were not defeated by counter-revolution, but they paid a high price for them because they were not defeated by counter-revolution. They won against counter-revolution only by becoming more like by militarizing, by becoming more authoritarian, by transforming into their opponents, into their enemies. And this is why I'm using this distinction by Enzo Traverso, the historian Enzo Traverso, between victory and defeat on the one hand and success and failure on the other. And the Bolsheviks, they won they were not defeated, they were victorious, but this victory became the precondition for their failure. They were not defeated by their enemies, but they failed, measured against their own promises, their own desires. Yeah, and out of this distinction, out of this this question of you know de- defending the gains of the revolution, even if it means uh, you know the the, uh, the dictatorship of the party over the proletariat indefinitely, um, we, of course, enter this cycle of endless debates of people saying, well, we have to defend the Soviet Union as socialist, uh, you know, even until it's, even until 1989, uh, we have to defend a Chinese state repression of Uyghur populations and, uh, like, uh, you know, uh, anything short of that is, is capitulation to imperialist propaganda. Um, and, you know, your book, although I, I think it's pretty clear that you're on a, a certain side of that debate, um, it treats these debates kind of kind of separately. Like it's, uh, it looks to the the immense tragedy and betrayal of these things without necessarily saying, well, it could have been different, or you know, th- this person did the wrong thing. It's 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 more uh, tarrying with the negative, tarrying with the the tragedy uh, of what happened as it happens. Um, in uh, with with some prose that's some you know really remarkably beautiful uh, and uh, compelling prose, but it's it's also pretty depressing, right? <laughs> um, yeah. It's uh, um, I, I, a friend of ours told told me that you write about revolutionary depression as um, kind of a symptom Post, of this post revolutionary depression. <laughs> I would be I'd be um, gentle and say uh, haunting. Let's sure. say haunting. Mm-hmm. And we should be haunted by this history. We should. Um, I guess, uh, you know, my, my, if I have a question there, it's that, uh, you know, it, for, for people who are engaged in those debates constantly, and you can be in that debate mm-hmm. your entire life, what, yeah. what would your intervention be? How would you stop that debate so we can move on to something else? Or, or should we? Well, I think there's, a, there's a very interesting observation to be made. And this is that anti-communists, and traditional communists, and here I mean Stalinists, right? Authoritarian communists, they merge at a certain point since they both believe that communism and Stalinism form an identity, that Stalinism is communism, and that communism is Stalinism. They just um, one sees them sees this as positive and the other as negative. But they both agree 
on this logic of identity. And of course, the anti-communists say, since communism is Stalinism, Stalinism is communism, everything bad you can say about communism is true. And the Stalinists say, since Stalinism is communism, communism is Stalinism, there cannot be any other way of creating a communist society than in an authoritarian way of a dictatorship. And both positions render invisible all the other communist movements, minority movements, that were struggling for a different path to communism and that were destroyed, crushed, imprisoned, exiled, and killed by the Stalinist regime. And this is why the anti-communism, anti-communist position is complicit with Stalinism, far away from being a radical giving a radical critique on Stalinism, is complicit with Stalinism, at least in this way, in that it identifies Stalinism communism and kills all the communists that have been killed by this authoritarian communism again, makes them forgotten, renders them invisible. This, this gets back to, I think... Um maybe the main theme of your book or one of the main themes, which is um, today, currently, our responsibility for this, uh, for what happened in the 20th century, right? Not not our direct responsibility, but what we can claim, uh, what part of this legacy we can claim for ourselves and what we feel as though we can push to the side. You have this great quote that Andy actually posted on Twitter the other day, but I'll read it now from your book. Mm-hmm. But there is no turning back. No pristine recourse to an innocent, unblemished urtext. The Marxist Stalin, sad as it is, has forever transformed the non-Marxist Marx. When we detach Stalin's head from Marx's cheek, for many volumes now, philological Marxists have been working on separating him from Engels. This complex amputation will leave behind a wound that will never heal. No skin will grow there, no hair. Uh, dilapidated Karl Heinrich Marx. Depilated. Depilated is a word I've never heard before. (laughs) I had to look that up. It means hairless. Oh, hairless. Okay. Uh, Depilated. A depilated Karl Heinrich Marx died 1883, half his face beardless. Henceforth, that is the only portrait of the founder of scientific Marxism that should ever be allowed to hang. Quite a controversial statement there, but I, I think a powerful one. Uh, what, what, do you, what do you say to that? What, uh, kind of expand a little bit upon, uh, upon this. And, and what I want to know is, who is this Mark? I think we, we must overcome the idea, the illusion of a position of purity, of innocence. Probably this position was always wrong, but after the experience of the 20th century, after the experience of the history of Stalinism, this is just a position that we can no longer take and we should not try to take this position. We should also get rid of the idealistic idea that the world is split in two, on the one hand, material conditions, reality, and on the other hand, ideas, theory, right? There's often the saying, well, the, the idea was good or okay in theory, but then it was too early or the world was not ready yet. This is just a position you cannot take uh, as a, from a materialist perspective because theory is always embedded in history and rationality is always intertwined with affects with emotions, with with desire. And so I would say, let's not try to find a pure beginning, neither in history, that's in 1917, nor in theory, let's say, Marx. There is not one Marx, but there are many, many Marx, Marxists. The Stalinists claim their marks 
Anarchists claim another Marx. Feminists claim a Marx. Council communists claim a Marx. There's different Marxes, also different Marxes in his texts. And the question is not so much who is the true Marx, but what part of Marxist theory can we make use of? And this is also a question, of course, of an anti-authoritarian Marx, a Marx true to a communist desire for a world based on solidarity instead of competition. But also a Marx that a Marx who is informed about the history of socialism, the history of Stalinism, and is no longer as naive, for example, to think that you could leave the question of how to organize a future society to the future, that you could leave this question just open and it would settle out just perfectly, just fine in the future. No, this would be intellectually irresponsible. You have to think how the future can look like. You have to think about how a socialist society can be organized democratically. You cannot just say next time it will work out. This you cannot say anymore after the experiences of the 20th century Stalinism. Yeah, you know, I, I wrote a book uh, last year about uh, Jay Posadas. Are you familiar with Jay Posadas? No. He was a Trotskyist from Argentina uh, who, mm-hmm. who formed his own international. Uh, but today he's best known for believing in UFOs, believing that we needed to have nuclear war uh, as soon as possible. And my book was about the the history of this guy and his movement, but also why uh, young people today, especially in the United States and in England, love this guy so much. And it's not because of his his you know his particular brand of Trotskyism. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's because he believed these kind of ridiculous, crazy things. And instead of just saying that these people are are wrong and they're not uh, treating history fairly, I say, well, maybe there's something to that method of uh, rescuing mm-hmm. this figure of this of the past for our own purpose. And uh, there's a quote uh, I'll uh, I'll read briefly um, that I think gets to the same method, which is that uh, only wrong maps can point the way. Uh, what did you mean by that? Like, what, what do you mean by uh, uh, the wrong map to the future? Mm. <laughs> Actually, I'm, I'm not sure. I, 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 I'm, I'm not sure about this passage <laughs> because, I, as far as I remember, it, it goes on or goes on and says that, but there is no trick, right? But you're saying that the wrong map. Uh, oh, it says directly on the next paragraph. Except there is no <laughs> trick. No metaphysical graphs capable. A grasp capable of bending past defeats into signposts towards a future victory. No narrative of progress that can free an unreal dream from the violent embrace of its history in which it became a nightmare. Those who died in the Stalinist terror died in vain. Do you stand by your statement? (laughs) (laughs) Did they die? Did they die in vain? Or was my misreading correct? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, this... It, it, the, 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 the method of the book is sometimes truly dialectical, right? It's like, <laughs> it, Two readings just this, violently confronting it, it, one another at all times. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. You have the, the one sentence and then a paragraph later, you have, you have the opposite. I think it was even in the, in, the, in the quote that we had before, that if we, if we had continued, we would have landed in a different conversation. Um, but yeah, because this is is some someone wrote a review in a in a Marxist magazine from Austria, Vienna, the Grundrisse, and said this is mainly a book of questions, mm. not so much of answers, but of questions. And it's about posing the right questions. And what the book does is to try to pose these questions in a very truthful manner, this, but this is not necessarily the manner which makes them easy to be answered, right? It, it's not about how can I pose a question so that I can give a good answer to it, but how can I pose a question in a way that it's that it presents us with the, with the, 
with the difficulty that is in captured in history. Right? So the my, the thesis, the, the the starting point is always the problem that the dilemma of revolution is real. This is not an ideological problem. And this is also very important for the conversations we're having with people who are very suspicious of communism. It's important to see that their mistrust in communist ideas, movements, paroles, is not only based on wrongful ideologies, but it's based on a very true uh, understanding of history, namely that the attempt to abolish domination ended up in new forms of domination, some of them even worse than before. This is a real problem, and it's a very difficult problem to deal with. But, and this is what the book is arguing for, we cannot not deal with it. We have to deal with it. And then we have to ask the questions, how can we work through the history? And one important thing for me is to, to, to give it, to try to give at least an answer, is um, to unbury what has been buried in this history of communism. Not to believe in the history of communism as it was written by those who succeeded, who were victorious. Not to believe in the history of communism as it is written by Stalinists and anti-communists. But to unravel parts of the history that um, are not on the surface. You know? All these alternative movements minority communists who uh, were made invisible and try to bring them back in the conversation. Because very often in, in the left, and this is an argument I take from Eva von Riedeker, leftists mistake that what is most provocative to the bourgeoisie with what is most radical. And then it seems like a good idea to... Uh, quote Lenin or to, to make a conference about Lenin for yourself a Leninist because, you know, this will provoke the liberals the most. But it's not really the most radical perspective to take the most leftist perspective or the most even realist perspective in order to, to reach the world you're striving for. We call that trolling of, here in the United States. Trolling. <laughs> hmm? We call that trolling. Trolling, yeah. No, but instead, you know, instead of remembering Lenin, why not remember Victor Serge or Emma Goldman, Alexander Bergman, or Susanne Leonard or Isaac Steinberg? Very different communists that are often forgotten, but should not be forgotten. Well, I think people uh, are are so uh, you know uh, uh, idolizing of Lenin. Um, and this is another uh, excellent part of the book, is about the, the death of Lenin becoming the cult of Lenin and how he was, he was deified in a, in, in a way that certainly I don't think Lenin would have appreciated. I think he said um, specifically he didn't, and that Stalin was the one that uh, right. did what, what Lenin didn't want to do. Lenin just wanted to be scattered. But mm. I think that people idolize him besides the, uh, the legacy of that cult is that he did essentially intervene and take over a country. So you can you can say, well, he succeeded, and nothing succeeds like success. At the same time, what what was that success? What you know? What, what did it cost? Exactly. This is this is uh, also what I'm when, when when I'm trying to understand why the communists, uh, even though they knew they felt that something or a lot of things were very much off in this. Uh, communist movement were very much wrong, were very much against what they were fighting for, against um, the reasons why they joined the communist movement in the beginning, why they still um, remained loyal to the party. What you just said is, a, is one of the strongest arguments, that uh, this Soviet party was victorious, at least, but... As I, as I said with Enzo Traverso, it was not successful. It was not successful um, 
when measured against its own promise of reaching a communist society. And of course, this is uh, the argument used by the Leninists and their apologists that um, there was no alternative, right? That you only had the alternative of authoritarian communism or of defeat. And this is in a, in a later book of mine, which is called like the, the most beautiful day in the life of Alexander Berkman on a possible success of uh, the Russian, Russian revolution. I call this um, the revolutionary dilemma. And in this book, I'm, I'm trying to answer some of the questions that I'm posing in yesterday's tomorrow. Revolutionary dilemma is this exactly this defeat or failure or victory or success. And the question is, was there a way, some way, somewhere in the history of the revolution for both, for victory and success, for defeating counter-revolution without becoming similar to counter-revolution? without becoming authoritarian. And um, yeah, to, to spoil it a bit, uh, my position is, yes, there was such a way. I think maybe as we get, uh, as we come towards a conclusion, um, maybe some more personal and psychological parts for, for me and maybe for the other communists who mm -hmm. pick up uh, your book and read it. There's this sense, I feel like, that, that I certainly have, and I think a lot of people do, that we as communists or we as anti-capitalists, anarchists or whatever, are part of this long train of uh, this, this, this long historical movement that goes back 150, 200 years. And that the, what we're fighting for today is the same as what people were fighting for in the past. Mm -hmm. So that means the way that we feel today and the way we interact today is the same as people in the past. But what your book d did for me was um, it posed this question, how were people communists in the past? And how did this great gulf arise between what people th thought and felt back then? Part of this, this larger, this, this, this um, international movement, part of this like almost messianic process of, of mm. creating the future, part of real deep, um, social relations uh, and, and relationships with one another and with the party and with indeed the future, right? One of the things that the book did was, was made me realize how utterly different it is for us today mm -hmm. to, 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 to be what it means to be a communist. And part mm -hmm. of that, I, I think, means that we need to put maybe we need to understand the past ways in which people had been communists, understand that, and then maybe put that to bed and start thinking about the ways that you know, that, that we should be operating and, and thinking and interacting with the world today. Maybe that's a little vague, but do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah. Well, I think it is ex exactly right what you're saying. It is at the same time being communist today or fighting for a communist society today is very different from fighting for a communist society 100 years ago. And at the same time, it's, it's very similar. It is both. But um, I'm not sure if I would agree that we have to put it to bed, as, as you said. I'm more thinking about how can, how can we create relations, um, not only to the living, but also to the dead. And what kind of relations do we want with the past? And for me, it's like mainly two directions to deal with the past. One is to teach the past lessons, even though that seems weird because there's no, no one to listen if they are dead. But very often a critique, a present critique of the past finds out where the past was wrong and where we made some progress in the way we describe the world and the way we analyze it and the theoretical tools we use and the words we use and the words we do not use anymore. But I find even more interesting the question, what can we learn from the history? What um, knowledge did former communists have that we don't have anymore? Or as you put it, what experience did they have and what relations did they have? What, what feelings were possible? What effects were possible? What emotions were possible? What experiences were possible 100 years ago that are 
hard to imagine today, or at least hard to imagine, for example, in Europe or the or in, in the US. And thinking about it, trying to imagining it is also a way of bringing parts of it back, bringing parts of it back into the conversation. And so as to create exactly a conversation, a dialogue with uh, the dead so that they are not forgotten, but that they become alive in a way again. Okay. Well, uh, moving on to uh, a question of praxis, I suppose. You're part of a group called Zero COVID that is, I think, mostly in Germany, but you, you said there are there's uh, some groups in the United States too, so I'll link to that in the show notes. Tell us a little bit about what that group is and, and maybe how it relates to what we've been talking about. Yeah, so I think that the, the historical situation that we're in is a, is a very special situation. Uh, the global pandemic, right? It is maybe the first time in history that the whole world simultaneously experiences the same problem, the same catastrophe, the same virus. One world, one virus. At the same time, of course, the people in the world are affected by this virus in a very different or unequal ways, as we know, but especially poor people, and this also means people of color, are affected by the virus much more drastically than rich people, white people, people in the north are less affected by, by it than people in the global south. So we have sameness and inequality at the same time. And then there's also like different political answers to the same question that is posed by the virus, how to deal with the virus, how to deal with the pandemic. And there's mainly three answers. One is herd immunity. Just let the virus go through the population and infect as many people as possible until we reach herd immunity. This, Donald Trump flirted with this strategy Donald, uh, and John Boris Johnson tried to implement it in the beginning. This is also what the Swedish government tried to do, and Bolsonaro actually does it, actually. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have a zero-COVID or no-COVID strategy. This is um, the strategy, the answer to the question of the virus was mostly given at the the places in the world where the virus um, appeared first, the in China, Vietnam, Taiwan, Thailand, Mongolia, but also in New Zealand and Austria. And then you have in the middle the flatten the curve strategy, which is, I would say, the neoliberal approach that is um, also probably like uh, what defines the U.S. American policies, politics now, or is just the politics that the West is um, trying to implement. And I think it's very clear that this strategy of flattening the curve has failed. After one year of the pandemic, we have experienced several lockdowns and easing and lockdowns again. Cultural and social life is down. But still, hundreds of thousands or millions of people have died, have um, gotten ill, uh, are still suffering from long COVID. So this strategy is obviously has obviously failed. And this became uh, even clearer to me and other comrades, friends in, in winter. And it also became clear that the, the idea that everything would be fine again as soon as there is a vaccination was also an illusion, partly because it takes much longer to vaccinate everybody, partly because it is not really clear how the vaccines will help against all the variants, all the mutants and mutations, and uh, mostly because uh, the capitalist states of the global north are refusing to to give a waiver on on the patents on on copyright 
and to make sure that uh, the people from the global south will also get the vaccine. But now we know that it will take at least uh, three years until everybody in the world will, will see the vaccine, at least. Right? But since this is a global pandemic, it can only be end globally. So the no COVID strategy is not um, in particular a, a leftist strategy, as I said, like neither uh, Australia or Mongolia, for example, are in particular leftist um, governments. But in, 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 in the German-speaking world, uh, this is like uh, Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, the zero COVID group that was founded um, tried to bring the no-COVID strategy together with a with, um, classical leftist perspective, but not in just in adding it, but because we argue that it really needs to be uh, brought together. And we, um, our main demand is like a shutdown, a solidaric shutdown of society. Because what we have seen in, in, in the... the uh, and the way of dealing with the pandemic in the West is that most of the measurements target um, leisure time. Right? You're not you're not supposed to go, as you said, to the cinemas, to the theater, uh, to clubs, to bars, to meet friends. But still, you're supposed to work right? to make profit. And this is basically the reason why also the politics is failing, why the, the virus and the infection rate is still up. Because it is not, it's not a, the virus of leisure time. And it still infects people in work conditions, especially. And this is the reason why it's, uh, as studies in the UK show, it's mainly workers um, who work in factories or who work with children or who work in um, nursing homes or in, in hospitals get infected the most. So... Um, we are arguing for a strategy that brings together both perspectives, the critique of the effects of the measurements on our social life, cultural life, and economic life, with um, a critique of um, the politics about the virus and um, like the cynical politics of the West that allow so many people to fall ill and so many people to die. Now, let's say hypothetically there was a a critique of this by uh, you know a hypothetical Italian post-autonomous thinker <laughs> who who might say, well, if we uh, allow the state these broad powers to, to force lockdowns, force mask wearing or whatever, it will inevitably be used to strengthen the security state and you know, crush any potential political agency. What would your response to that be? First, my response would be that many of those um, leftists, they focus only on, on the state and they do not even try to understand the pandemic. And they do not even try to find an answer to the problem posed by the pandemic and, the, and the, all these people dying. And this is all, all already true when you look at the leftist memory of their own history. There's, we, we know a lot about the First World War, about the Second World War, but we almost know nothing about the Spanish flu. There's, it's almost no... Uh, remembrance, no memory, no discussion around. And one of the reasons is, I think, that this is the, that the left um, accepts the division of um, the vision of science of labor, and is more focused on like social science or the humanities, in a way, in academics, than in science, you know, uh, in biology, and so on. It, it's uh, they don't see it as as their at their focus. And this is a problem if you are uh, confronted with a global pandemic, with a deadly virus, you cannot only focus on social relations, you cannot only focus on, on the state. And then the, the, the question is, is this argument um, true in any way? Can we show 
that, for example, the Chinese government, the Chinese state, the Vietnamese state, the New Zealand state, the Australian state have become more authoritarian since they applied the zero COVID strategy than they were before. Not, this is not a question, are those authoritarian regimes or not, but they are very, very different from each other. The question is, have they become more authoritarian through the politics of, of lockdown? And then in the next step, you can compare it to the countries, to nation states that applied the flatten the curve strategy, right? namely the US. So has, has uh, New Zealand become more authoritarian than the US has become more authoritarian in the last year? I think this is just, there's just no evidence for this claim, no evidence whatsoever. This has been an excellent discussion. Uh, we not only got a great talk going about the book, uh, but we also got some extra there with your um, COVID zero. And we encourage people to okay. check out the website, which we'll put in the show notes. And also, of course, to check out Yesterday's Tomorrow, a, a difficult book, a haunting book, but uh, one that uh, we think is very, very important. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. Oh,